Bible that we have. And what we said, what we believe, is that the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible Word of God. It is our very life. We had to start by affirming that, because if that's not true about the Bible, then we can't make any real reliable conclusions about anything that it says. If the source document isn't reliable, then nothing that we decide based on it is reliable either. So we started by saying this, this is reliable, this is truth, this is our very life. And so uh, we had that last week. Um, today we look at what this Bible says about God, God himself. And so for that we're starting in Genesis chapter 1. I'll just read the first three verses, then we'll pray. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see you this morning. Give us a new appreciation for your greatness and your glory and your love. Um, yeah, we need eyes to see it. Open our hearts and minds this morning to receive all that you have for us, to be encouraged that so much more is going on than what we see in this world. Lift up our eyes to the heavens where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so bless us this morning, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, the Bible starts with a claim that maybe we'll take for granted. Uh, churchy people take it for granted at least. But it is a claim that is of central importance to everything else that follows. The claim is that there is a God. There is a God. In the beginning, God. God's existence is assumed from the beginning of the Bible. And not only assumed, His existence is described as the origin of everything that exists in the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he goes on to describe all the other things uh, that God created, including mankind. So everything that we see, everything that we can touch, did not exist until God created it, until he spoke it. Out of nothing. That means that before anything existed, God existed. He is eternal. He's without beginning or end. He is independent. He is self-sufficient. He remains present in his created universe, but he doesn't need the universe to exist. He was doing fine without the universe. <laughs> He was doing fine without anybody. He did create, and that's why we're here. Now, here's some implications for that on our lives. For one thing, it calls for humility from us because it means that God holds the place of first importance in all things. In the beginning, God, 
not in the beginning, man. <laughs> right? We humans like to think we're the center of the universe, that everything revolves around us and around our happiness, but it actually doesn't. In the last book of the Bible, the Lord says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Things don't begin and end with us. They begin and end with God. So there's a call here to, to humility before God. We are derivative, and He is original. We're dependent. He's independent. We're definitely involved in the cosmic story that God is writing, but we're not the authors of that story. He is. God is the center of the universe. He's the preexistent one. And that is not a bad thing because the story that God is writing is wonderful, beyond imagination for those who seek him. And we're going to see why that is later. But here's the second implication about the existence of God, besides the fact that it calls for humility. It means we aren't living intelligently, we aren't living wisely, we aren't living well if we live as if God isn't there. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool does that. It's like saying there is no such thing as air the very thing that we need to keep alive. It's sometimes said that pride is the root of all of our sins, and I suppose a case could be made for that. But I think Jerry Bridges was onto something in his book, Respectable Sins. He said that the deeper root is actually godlessness. Godlessness isn't just about casting off all restraint and indulging in all sorts of wicked behavior. No, godlessness is just living as if God doesn't exist. No thoughts about any accountability to Him. No thoughts about any purposes that He might have for our lives. No thoughts about any principles that He intends for us to live by. We just, we just do what's right in our own eyes. And we all do this to some extent. When we worry, for example. What is worry? Worry is imagining a future without God. You know, bad things are coming. It's just me and the bad things. And so I better get some solution to this thing. And then we start to worry. It's imagining a future without God. That's godlessness. Worry is a, sign, a symptom of godlessness. When we make our comfort and our pleasure our top priority in life, we mimic the person spoken of in Isaiah 47, 8, who is a lover of pleasures, who sits securely, who says in his heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. <laughs> My happiness is central. <laughs> it's all about me. No one else matters as much as I do. That's a, that's a form of godlessness. So to be fully rational, to live wisely and well, is to live coram deo. Those are Latin words that I heard somewhere. <laughs> R.C. Sproul uses them a lot. Coram deo means to live before the face of God. To know that he's present. To take him into account in everything that I do. 
<clears throat> but to do that, we need to know who this God is who created us and all things. And that's important because most people acknowledge some kind of God or spiritual force or deity, some spiritual realm. Most people would, would agree there is something to that, but our ideas about what that is or who that is, they're all over the place. So we have to see what God says about God. We have to go back to the reliable document. Let's go back to the author and say, what do you say about yourself? <laughs> who are you? Well, we're not going to be able to exp explain all of that in just you know, one sermon. <laughs> but we can explain some very definite things. We've already seen that he is the creator. We've already seen that he's self-existent. But there's so much more, because if that's all that God is, then that's no different than the God that Muslims and Jews also believe in. No, there's more to it than that. The Bible says something that nobody else is saying about God. And what it says is that God is triune. God is triune. Triune means consisting of three in one. God is Tri-unity, or the contraction is the word that we all know, God is Trinity. God is three in one, tri-unity, Trinity. We have the beginnings of that understanding in our Genesis text. In verse 1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, that sounds different. You have God and you have the Spirit of God as if one proceeds from the other or is different from the other, related, but somehow not the same. You have this, you have this question in, in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And if you keep on reading in chapter 1, you come to verse 26, which adds this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So God is an us, <laughs> a, a plural, more than one. Somehow God and the Spirit of God are both God, but they're distinct in some way. And then as you keep on reading into your Bible, you come to some statements about a man named Jesus, like this one in John 5, 18. He was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And John 10.30, Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. Or Jesus in John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. <laughs> That's a bid to be deity. I am the I am of the Old Testament. Before Abraham, who, who was born a really, really long time ago, before I was born, before him was me. That, that's a God statement. So Jesus comes onto the scene and he claims that he is in some way also the self-existing, creating, eternal God. So at first blush, it looks like there's three gods in the Bible. <laughs> one who's a father, one who's a son, and one who is the spirit. And this is the us who made man in our image. And it sounds like three gods, right? But then you come to other texts like this one in Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So I and me are singular, not plural. 
I and me, they're one God, and there is no other God. So this passage says there is only one God, not three gods. So how do we put this together? Since all of God's word is completely truthful, and on this point it sounds contradictory. Here's how we say it in our statement of faith. Here's how we're putting all that together. We say this, the one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Infinitely excellent and all-glorious, each person is fully God, sharing the same deity, attributes, and essential nature, yet there is but one God. Let me break that up into three statements and give evidence for each one. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see all three of them on display in Mark chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. This is Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John. And here's what happened. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So at Jesus' baptism, you have all three persons acting simultaneously, yet distinctly from one another. You have God speaking from heaven. You have the Spirit visibly descending. And you have Jesus coming out of the water with the declaration, this is my son. That means we have to throw out one idea about God which is that God is only one person who just appears to us in different ways at different times. Sometimes the idea there would be sometimes he appears as a father, sometimes as the son, sometimes as the spirit. The way one person could be a father in his own house, a son in his parents' house, and maybe a doctor at work. One person operating in three different modes depending on the situation. That's called modalism, and it was denounced early in church history. Partly because of this verse here in Mark chapter 1. They're obviously you know, not all in the same persons, right? There's three of them here. There's a voice, there's a spirit, there's the sun, and they're all operating at the same time, clearly distinct from one another. Now, at the baptism of Jesus, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting simultaneously and distinctly from each other. God exists as three persons. So, the second thing we say in the statement of faith, each person is fully God. This is affirmed in a lot of places. First, the Father is fully God. Lots of places we read the, the statement, God the Father. Like in Jude chapter 1, he's addressing that letter to believers in Jesus, and he addressed it to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The Father is God. God is a Father. And that's something that we're going to come back to, the fatherness of God a little bit later here because that, that directly connects to the gospel itself. Without God being a father, there would be no good news for us. So we'll come back to that. So the father is fully God. The son is also fully God. Hebrews 1, 2 and 3 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all, all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
So the Son, it is said of Him that He, the world was created through Him. That means He was there in the beginning. We only read about God and the Spirit of God, but this says the Son was there and the world was created through Him. He's also eternally existent. He's the exact imprint or the exact expression or essence of God's character and person. That means everything that God is, the Son is. Jesus is that visible expression of God the Son become man. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that's why he could say to Philip in John 14, 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, because he's the exact imprint of his nature. And we'll have much more to say about the person of Jesus, the dual natures of Jesus as God and man in a later sermon. And finally, the Spirit is fully God. In Acts 5, 3, and 4, you have the story of Ananias. He's a man who sold some property, and he brought the property to the apostles as a gift to the... He brought the, the, the proceeds of selling the property to the apostles, saying, here's this gift, I sold this land, here's this money, give this to the church. But he lied about how much he sold it for, and he kept back some of the profits for himself. And so he comes up to Peter, and, he, and he, he gives this story, and then Peter replies to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You have not lied to men, but to God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God, because the Holy Spirit is God, the Spirit of God. So God exists as three persons, and each person is fully God. But the third thing we say in the statement of faith is that there is but one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a declaration of what we call monotheism, that there is one God. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, meaning the Lord alone is our God. Or that the Lord is one Lord. In Luke 4.8, Jesus responds to Satan's desire to be worshipped by saying, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Him only, singular, one Lord. There is one God that you must worship. And Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 8.6, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. That's an example, by the way, of how in Scripture, when you see the word God all by itself, the emphasis is often on God the Father as the functional head of the three-in-one. So you put it all together. We say God exists in three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is but one God. That's the fundamental understanding of the Trinity of the triunity of the triune God. Now, there's so much more we could say about the Trinity. Many and lengthy books have been written for centuries about the Trinity. What we've been talking about so far is what's called the ontological Trinity. If you want to hear Bible-sounding theological words, uh, the, you know, what scholars bat around, ontological trinity, that just means who God is in himself, existing as three persons in unity. 
And the early church wrote carefully worded creeds and confessions to, to kind of say what that is and what that isn't. You know, who's the essence of, what's the essence of all this? But there's also what's called the economic trinity, which distinguishes between the roles of each member of the Godhead in creation and in providence and in salvation. So, for example, in salvation, it is God the Father who sends His Son to rescue sinners. It is the Son who accomplishes that, that salvation by dying on the cross for our sins. And it is the Spirit who applies that salvation to us by regenerating our hearts so that we repent and believe and are saved. One God offering salvation, but each member of the Trinity is described as having a specific role in it that's distinct from others. We could go on and on. To understand the Trinity is a lifelong project. Actually, it's an eternal project because we will never get to the depths of all that God is. <laughs> Let's bring this down to application to our lives. Why do we need to know that God is three in one? What difference does it make in real life? Well, here's one difference it makes. It, it it contributes to, is fuel for, a sense of awe and wonder about God. It, it should produce awe and wonder. I mean, he dwells in realms of existence that we just can't comprehend. Transcendent is, is one word that, that grabs it. He's just, he's just so other. He's just so out there. He's just like beyond what we can grasp. Uh, stretches our imagination to get our minds wrapped around a three that's only one <laughs> and, and that are ruling and have been existing forever. And it's just like, like you can't get your head wrapped around that. People have tried to compare the, the Trinity to things that, that we can sort of see and understand. So like there's a, there's a thing called the triple point of water. That's a, a set of conditions under which you can have water as both solid, liquid, and gas all at the same time. And say, so that's kind of like what the Trinity is. It's just one, but there's three different ones. And we say, well, maybe that's kind of like it. And then others will say, well, the Trinity is like the sun and the rays of the sun and the heat of the sun. So you just have one sun, but you have these different parts of it. So we try to like get like our, uh, an example that we can lay hold of and say, that, that must be like the Trinity is. But the fact is, none of that stuff really gets at who he is. It's all, it all falls short of the reality. We don't have anything to really compare the Trinity to. It's just outside of our, of our ex experience and our existence. We're, we're dealing with somebody who's just outside the box. Um, we are made in his likeness. That is true, but he is not like us. I mean, Rembrandt painted self-portraits, but in no way is the painting a replica of the person. And, and so also for us, we just can't get our minds wrapped around who God is. We're in his image in a way that our character is like him, our ability to do things. But, but that, that's not all that God is. He is just beyond that, way beyond that. We, we can't get our head around the complexity, the inner workings of his being, the things he's capable of, the extent of his wisdom and power. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. 
<laughs> you, you cannot get to the end of his greatness. First Corinthians 2.11 says, No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Nobody gets God completely except God. <laughs> Romans 11.33 says, How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. That's what Paul said after 11 chapters of, of explaining the gospel and God's election and, and his, his workings within, you know, within man. And he's like, man, that blows my mind. <laughs> the fact that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around the Trinity is a good thing. Because a God that we can figure out, a God that we can say, oh yeah, yeah, I get God. Yeah, I know all about him. That's not a God we need. And that's not a God worthy of worship. Why would we need God if he's just like us? In the documentary I mentioned last week, American Gospel, Christ Crucified, one of the people interviewed was Bart Campolo. He is a former Christian pastor um, who left the faith, is now a secular humanist speaker. He's very articulate, very likable, at least in the interviews. And he was talking about his, his exodus out of the Christian faith, and he said something that really caught my attention. He said, the last God I believed in was awesome because he was just like me. Now, there's a lot of context behind that statement. I think he was just trying to be factual and not prideful in the way he thought of things. But here's what occurred to me. I wonder if he would have left God if he could have appreciated that God is not like him. If he could have appreciated that God's greatness is unsearchable. If he could have only seen the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, as he describes himself in Isaiah 57, 15. It's harder to leave or ignore God if you genuinely see him. But it isn't impossible. You can still leave a God like that. You can still live as if he doesn't exist if you don't have something else in place in what you know about God. You also need to love this God and love that he is triune. And that brings me to the last point, which is the connection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll put it this way. Our salvation is the overflow of God being triune. Our salvation is the overflow of God being triune. See, up to this point in the message, it wouldn't be surprising if you're feeling like, you know, I should be amazed, I should be excited about God being triune, but I just am not. You know, uh, somehow God as Trinity just doesn't generate a lot of excitement. It's all so very theological and so academic and it's so hard to grasp. Uh, and, and that's because we haven't really addressed the relational aspect of the Trinity towards us and how God being Trinity is the reason that we can have hope for eternal joy. 
So I'm going to credit this last part to a very good book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. We, we read that book in our Emerging Leaders class, West Region Emerging Leaders, and it's very good. I highly recommend it. It's very readable, sometimes funny, and uh, always insightful about the Trinity. In the first chapter, Reeves made a point that really impacted me, and I want to pass it along to you. And it springs from what Jesus prayed in John 17, 22 to 26. And this is, right, this is right before he's going to the cross. He's praying to the Father about the disciples. And this is a really dense passage I'm going to read here, but I'm just going to come back and highlight certain things out of it. So here's what Jesus says as he's praying to God the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, what do we learn from this prayer? Reeves asks in his book, What was God doing before creation? What was he doing before the beginning, <laughs> before he created anything? Well, here's the answer. He was a father loving his son. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, you, we can show from other texts that the Spirit is involved in this fellowship of love as well, but let's focus on the Father-Son connection within the Trinity. What we see is that God has always been, from before creation, a Father loving His Son. So think about another description that we have of God. We know God is the sovereign ruler over all things. That he's a king, high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. And that's an amazing truth, and we are going to address that truth in this series. But that isn't who God is, first and foremost, when it comes to his fundamental identity. Because God was not the ruler over all things until he created all things over which he rules. God was not the king until he created the kingdom over which he reigns. In fact, he wasn't even the Savior until he made the people whom he would save. God didn't operate in any of these roles until he created the heavens and the earth and the people in it. But what God has always been, what God is in his fundamental Trinitarian being, is a father loving his son. That is who he is. First and foremost, apart from the other roles. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, here's how the gospel flows out of that. The reason the Father sent the Son 
to become man and die on the cross for our sins is because he delights in others loving the Son like he does. Jesus said, O righteous Father, you have sent me that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. In other words, the creation of humanity and the subsequent rescue of many of us from our sins is because God wants the love that He has for His Son to be in us. He delights in having other people love His Son the way He loves His Son. And that makes sense when you think about it. When a baby is born, what do the parents naturally do? in a non-COVID world at least, they show off their baby to all their friends, right? That's what was happening this morning. You missed it if you were on Zoom. So Todd brought in Josiah. Todd and Becca were here with Josiah. And there was this crowd. Whoosh. (laughs) Right? We love to show off the baby and, and hear people say, oh, he's so cute, you know? And the parents beam with agreement. Yeah, he is. (laughs) That's why I brought him. I wanted you to see that. (laughs) They love having others love their newborn, their child, their son, their daughter. We are like that because God is like that. We are made in his image. But because of our sin, our loves are disordered and they're often showered on anything except God's Son. So what the Father wants to do is restore our loves to where they ought to be. He wants us to see the beauty of God through His Son who came to be with us and to love that Son like He does. That, that's what He's restoring when He sends Jesus to the cross. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your disordered loves that are all over the place, except on my Son, and I'm going to rearrange it and show you what's truly beautiful. The God who is eternal and self-existent and independent, and yet who is, co- comes down into His creation and wants to communicate and wants us to know Him. And God loves to have us love His Son. But He can't, uh, he can't allow us to get close to Him unless He deals with our sin. And so that's what the cross is for, where Jesus bears the penalty for what we've done, our disordered loves. He takes the burden. He takes, he takes the, the blame and the punishment. He takes God's wrath in our place. And that allows God to satisfy His justice and be merciful to us and to bring us to Jesus and to join us to Him, which happens when we put our faith in Him. So the Father sends the Son, and He turns us into people who see Jesus as a beautiful Savior. We believe and are saved, and we enter into a relationship with Him like what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, You love him. Oh, that's what God's after. (laughs) But you know, more than that, God's not just after you loving his son. He is after that, first and foremost. But you should not think that he somehow bypasses you, that that's the only thing. God actually loves you when he wants you to love his son. 
You experience God's love for you personally. Going back to the John 17 text, Jesus said, You sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Here's an amazing thing. God the Father loves those whom he saves with the same intensity and genuine affection that he loves his own son. You love them even as, or in the same manner as, or as one translation says, as much as you loved me. How can this be that the Father should love us as he loves his own son? It's because in order to bring us to his son so that we love him like he does, he has to adopt us. <laughs> he brings us into the family. We are adopted through belief in Jesus. We are adopted as his children. Romans 8.15 says, when you receive the Holy Spirit into your life, you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit applying salvation to us makes us aware that God is now our Father as well. He makes us aware that, that His love, which was directed at His Son and always is, is also now widened to include us. Now He has other children, you might say, that He also loves with the same love by which he loves his son from all eternity what happens is we get swept up into the loving the loving environment of the trinity itself the triune god is a god that we can love and worship and lay down our lives for because of that now we don't necessarily just love a ruler even a sovereign ruler that's a person who's high and powerful and, and it's great i'm glad but, but the person that we love is a person who comes to us and rescues us from our sin and, and releases us from the punishment of it and says, now, now here's Jesus. I'm joining you to him. And you are now also my child. And so now you belong in my house. And now I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be your father forever. Now, that's a God that we can love. Salvation is the overflow of God being triune because through the gospel, we get swept up into the love that exists within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If there was no Trinity, then there could be no gospel. I don't know how to end. <laughs> Except I want to repeat what Isaiah says, what God says in Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. That's the only way that we can ever feel secure and not orphans, fending for ourselves in the world. We have to be introduced into his family. We have to be part of his house. And that's what happens when you turn to him in faith that Jesus is the son who died for us. So that's how we want to end is turn to him. If you've not been convinced of that, if you've not seen Jesus that way, turn to him, believe in him as the savior, as God come to us and be saved. And then you enter this household. <laughs>
And if you already have believed in him, then believe that you're in the household. Believe you're in the family. Believe you have a father. You might look around every day and go, man, it just feels like I'm an orphan. It just feels like it's just me versus the world. But that's not true. You have it on God's authority that it's not true. He's a father. The very best. The perfect one. And there's nothing that can stop him from exercising his love. He actually is also the sovereign ruler. And he will look after you. That's what a good dad does. Let's pray. So, Lord, help us turn to you for the first time, turn to you for uh, the hundred thousandth time. I thank you. We thank you that you are Father, Son, and Spirit, all working together for our good. Thank you for the love that existed from eternity, that always will exist, that you bring us into, so that the love for us is also of an eternal stamp. (laughs) It, It never dies. We will always exist in this love, those who put their trust in Christ, so... Encourage your people and bring those into your family that have yet to believe. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. How has the sun?